Hello, and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI and precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, its CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Today, we speak with Matthew Mickelson. Matthew is the CEO of EVID Science, a technology company using AI to make access to medical evidence as simple and seamless as possible. He is an expert in machine learning and natural language processing, as well as an enthusiastic company builder. We talk about how EVID supports evidence-based medicine, the value of well-curated information, and the importance of doing the work to validate your science. Let's get right into it. Hi, everybody. Today, I'm joined by Matthew Michelson. He's founder and CEO of Evid Science. Matthew, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit about Evid. Um, tell, tell us about the mission, what the company does. Who are you guys? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So uh, essentially, our, our goal is to democratize access to medical evidence that's in the literature. And what we mean by that is there's all these great facts about how effective treatments are, how safe they are, and it's all embedded in the text of the literature itself. Uh, and, you know, the medical literature, the body of the literature grows about 7,000 papers a day. So nobody can really stay on top of it and read all those papers. And so our goal is to allow people to access that data that's buried in the text in a very simple way, in a very scalable way. Uh, and really, for us, the only way to do that is to use artificial intelligence. So without giving away the, the secret recipe, kind of how do you do it? We like teaching a child how to read. So essentially what we're solving is uh, what, what we in computer science call the machine reading problem. So you give a machine some text, and then it's able to pull facts out of that text in a very structured way. So think like an Excel spreadsheet of all the results in that text. And the way you do it is, is similar to how you teach a child to read. So you start by providing lots of examples. You say to it, you know, this is a result. You know, 10 out of 15 is a numeric result. Tylenol is an intervention. Um, you know, less headache is an outcome. And you give it lots of examples, and the system starts to infer from these examples what the context around that means. So if it sees a phrase like an increase in blah, it starts to think maybe blah is an outcome. And then over time, it starts to suggest back to you what it thinks are the correct answers, and then you correct it. In computer science jargon, it starts as a supervised machine learning task. where We're giving it examples. The system learns all the context. That's called unsupervised learning. So the system's just looking at lots and lots of text and figuring out the context of words. And then the active learning part is where it suggests what it thinks is the parts where it's confused, and then we correct or encourage it along those lines. So pardon me, I'm, I'm a biologist, not a, a computer guy. So this is essentially an example of uh, natural language processing then? Correct. That's right. Just to, to give it a, a category that others might recognize. Yeah, that's right. That's fascinating. So you, you said the medical literature. Tell, tell us a little more. What bodies of literature are you actually incorporating here? Yeah, so, so obviously we incorporate PubMed. Um, it's large and it's publicly available, so that's a main data source for us. We also ingest uh, the records from clinicaltrials.gov, and we link those into PubMed articles so you can get all that extra color from the abstracts when they're there. Um, and then we also ingest conference proceedings um, that are online. So, and those are usually customer-driven. So, you know, if people have a particular interest in, you know, cancer, then we pull in ASCO, or mm -hmm. you know, a lot of outcomes researchers want us to pull in ISPOR, so we've done that. 
Interesting. How would um, a scientist, or, or let's start here, who, who's your audience for this service? Who are, who are the people who actually take advantage of, of your product? So, um, so right now it's pharmaceutical companies, biopharma companies. Um, we also have some interest from the payers uh, in the U.S. to do the reimbursement and uh, healthcare providers themselves who really want to understand how evidence, and in particular, how evidence for particular patients, you know, might look. You know? Mm. So this is the, you know, strongest evidence for this, you know, medication for comorbid heart disease, uh, liver disease, elderly patients. Mm. But in the biopharma world, we have a number of use cases. Um, sort of our main entree is usually the medical affairs teams. And there are a, a number of use cases. We, we just actually published a blog post kind of wrapping up our year in use cases because it was surprising to us. But, you know, fundamentally, it, it always centers around the same thing, which is, you know, people are trying to find results in the literature and searching them by hand and reading the papers and keeping notes in the margin is inefficient. Um, and it's better to have the system do it for you. Uh, and then you can compile those results yourself. You know, we're sort of like one level deeper than what you would think of as a common search engine. So okay. if you enter in a disease, we're not just going to give you all the papers that talk about that disease, but we're going to give you every individual result that the system's extracted from that paper about that disease. Gotcha. Um, and then, so medical affairs, will use it for publication planning, for feasibility studies, for MSLs to find interesting and new differentiations. Uh, medical information uses it to keep track, you know, literature surveillance, essentially. We're rolling out preclinical models so the development team can see all the results that, you know, happened in in vivo animal models. Things okay. like that. And, and so is it a stretch to say the, the old way of doing things or the incumbent solution is literally Google and a spreadsheet and maybe like a stylus? Yeah, that's correct. So there's sort of two common paths that people have taken in the past. So one is they do it themselves and they use Google or Google Scholar or PubMed, download the papers, take notes in the margin, transfer that to Excel and do their analysis. And it takes a long time um, or they just outsource it. Um, so you can hire a company and you pay them a lot of money. And then what they do is they go to Google, they download the papers, they write the notes in the margin, et cetera. And so your, your product, I'm guessing, then has a kind of a search-like interface. So you actually do have, have kind of a, a proper software for people to do this themselves. That's correct. So it's um, a software as a services platform. And our, our technology metaphors are very familiar to people. So you have a search bar, just like you would on, on Google. And then as you get your results, you're presented with filters on the left side of the screen, which are very similar to an Amazon style filter. So you just check down for the things you care about. So you can imagine that you search for, uh, like, for instance, we have a key opinion leader finder tool, so you can find experts in a field. So you search for the disease, and you may search for psoriasis. And you know, there are multiple types of psoriasis. So on the left, you can filter down and say, I care about scalp psoriasis. And then you can say, you know, I care about uh, experts in scalp psoriasis published on the endpoint of uh, like response. And then it filters down. And those are all just little checkboxes you can filter. What are some of the biggest technological challenges with this work? So I, I would say it's really machine reading is hard. It's a fundamental, uh, I, I always joke because sometimes people say, well, you know, how are you an AI company? I say, well, you know, reading is basically what separates humans from the animals. We can encode our knowledge and pass it down from generation to generation. So, so reading is hard. Right now, the system reads at about, we, we benchmark it against different human beings. Um, and it reads at like the level of an incoming medical student, which is pretty good considering, you know, it was a high school student not too long ago. Um, and it sort of grows exponentially. Right. So, you know, at some point it will be, you know, in the near future, it will will be, you know, sort of a scientist and then like, you know, superhuman performing. Sure. Um, so, you know, but it's a fundamentally hard technical challenge because every advanced technology that we use and we're, we're really on the cutting edge gets you only so much farther. So you're sort of constantly having to push the envelope to get farther and farther and farther in that level of performance. And, you know, that's tough. It's what makes it exciting and interesting 
thing, but you know, that's the big technical challenge. And then the other one is obviously scale. We've reached a point now where uh, one of the engineers likes to joke, you know, we just do it over lunch. So our benchmark is PubMed, the entirety of PubMed. And when we increase a model, we sort of use this technology we've developed to run it over all, you know, 30 odd million articles of PubMed over lunch. And then we come back and check the results, but it took a while to get there. So that, that was actually kind of my, my next question is to break that down. It, it sounds like it's actually kind of innovating around the algorithms. It's still tricky, but data ingestion itself is not maybe so hard. Yeah. So, so I, I think that um, there's sort of been an interesting trend in machine learning over the past five, well, maybe 10 years, which is the algorithms themselves are sort of less important than the mm-hmm. data that you have and the mechanism by which you can leverage that data to train some kind of model. Um, you know, a really innovative model in natural language processing can maybe get us a few percents, you know, higher. Mm-hmm. Um, having access to lots and lots of text is really what can boost us. So do you have then kind of a, a strategic roadmap for new bodies of text to go after? Yeah, we do. So, um, you know, one of it is we're in talks with publishers to get access to more of their data. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'd be interesting to find sources like FDA label data, um, mm-hmm. things like that. I, you know, because what we've done is essentially structured the summary of results, mm-hmm. um, I think it'd be very interesting to layer in more detailed and specific results like either omics data or claims data, because essentially what we have is a, a database at the end of the day of right. summarized evidence. And, and then that can be combined with all sorts of other types of data and evidence. Yeah, it seems almost like there might be some value in just building out the API layer, right? So that these different systems would find a way to talk. Yeah, yeah that's right. And what do you see as some of the, the biggest kind of business or commercial challenges in a space yeah. like this? The hardest thing by far is doing something new, as I'm sure you're aware with your company. So, you know, anytime you bring in a brand new process, uh, it takes a while for people to really understand what you're doing. Um, and it's sort of the, the hurdles come in two flavors. So one is people will generally find the analog to what they do that's the closest to what they do. Um, and so you have to overcome that hurdle. So they'll say, oh, well, searching the literature is equivalent to what I do when I outsource, you know, this systematic review to this company. Um, so then you're sort of playing the game of how does this compare to that, you know, outsourcing. Um, and so that's a technology or sorry, that's a, a business hurdle because there's a lot of inertia to kind of keep doing things in a similar way. Uh, and the second one, and I think perhaps the more important one for us to overcome and we're getting much better at is when you invent a new technology like this, you now open new possibilities that people haven't thought about yet. But getting them to the point where they start thinking creatively sometimes can be challenging. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's amazing. And people are just firing cool ideas at at us. I'm like, yes, do that, do that. You know, let's let's pursue that. Um, But sometimes someone says, oh, well, I can only think about this new technology in terms of how it will ease my generation of systematic review, for instance. And we might say, look, in the past, you had a choice and you committed to writing the systematic review over the next six months. And you made this choice. And uh, six months later, you know, you, you had it. But what if we could, you know, let you do 10 of them simultaneously and decide which one is the more interesting one because you don't have to do all that upfront work and then you can find the one you really want to pursue. So, you know, kind of changing their mindset is is a big challenge. Yeah, it seems like you guys have two really golden opportunities, but they're also kind of the other side of the coin is they're challenging. One is I'm just looking at your blog that you mentioned and yeah, you've got use cases all over. That's great because you could sell to different parts of different organizations, but that also comes with an opportunity cost. Like it's hard to message to different groups. Like, you know, you've got to kind of a focus sales operation at some point. And then the other side of that is if you're really kind of a zero to one technology, like something brand new where the value prop isn't, we'll save you 20%. It's you can do something totally different. Again, I think that's transformational, but it's it's in some ways a much tougher sale because there's no reference point. Yeah, that's right. And it, those are both excellent points. And, and so far, what we've done is we've, we've been lucky and we found very forward-looking champions in the companies mm-hmm. that we work with 
people who are very adept both at seeing the future and kind of dealing technologically, but also, you know, they're very seasoned pharmaceutical scientists. You know, those types of people can really help because they interface to all the other functional teams. And they're like, look, this is the brand new toy you can play with and here's what it can do. And here's how I think it works for you. So they really help us with that messaging. And then also they have the vision that they can help sell it internally. Um, and so it's challenging without those people. Do you, have you run into customers yet who say like, we've got this proprietary database we want to include? Are you, are you capable of handling a request like that? Yeah, we are. And we have. And so we, the platform kind of runs in two ways. So we have a, a multi-tenant SaaS system. So multi-tenant is, you know, all the companies can purchase licenses and they use kind of the same data yeah. in, in front end. Yeah. But, you know, obviously everything is secure and they're separated, but they're using the same platform. We also offer what we call the enterprise edition. So that would be, you know, your company.evidscience.com version of the tool. And then you can layer on private data and there's sort of integration that happens there. So some companies have a lot of really interesting internal documents that they've never published and we can include that as well. Yeah, the kind of the stuff that's jumping out at me, especially for like a pharma company that's got a bit of history is they'll have reams of interesting stuff on targets that didn't work, for example, like mm -hmm. that kind of stuff would probably be really valuable to them to you know, be able to find and search and so forth. Yeah, totally. That's in fact, that's one of our uh, one of our long term goals. So we've already started to see a bit of label expansion happening where we can find these investigator initiated studies that have pretty interesting clinical results. Mm -hmm. um, but long term, what we would like to do is once we have all of our preclinical data in, we can start to track classes of drugs from preclinical through clinical through real world because we include real world summary evidence as well. Mm -hmm. And then you can start to say, look, across this whole you know, group of drugs, here's a new drug that's come out and it did this preclinically and it did this clinically. So we predict based on how similar it is to this other class and what they did in the real world that this is what will happen. Yeah. Um, and so we can start to kind of move from a descriptive service where here's everything that's happened to something that's more predictive and say, you know, given these characteristics, here's what we think this path will look like. So maybe you can um, share with us one of the either use cases from your blog or elsewhere that's kind of a, a success story, something you guys are proud of for solving a problem for a client. Just make, yeah. it, make it concrete for, for the listeners. Sure, of course. Um, so I can think of two that are, are pretty interesting. Um, well, the first one is, is only going to be interesting to a certain subset of scientists, but to them it will be really interesting. And the other one I think everyone will kind of appreciate. So the first one is uh, we, we had a, a customer come to us with a systematic literature review that they'd done. For those of you who haven't done them, essentially you're compiling together all of the evidence for a particular treatment uh, compared to its competitors across the literature. And it's a long undertaking. Uh, and frankly, it's painful to do, but it's really, really important. Uh, this particular customer came to us with their systematic review for kind of their new up and coming drug in this disease area. And they said, look, what, what does your system think about this? And so we essentially ran our system against the same body of literature that they were talking about uh, and produced the same results they had. And so that was pretty eye-opening for them. I, we missed a few results. One was uh, investigated to investigate their email of the results. So you know, our system can't figure that out, obviously. Um, but you know, we did it and they were blown away. And then what we said is not only that, your systematic review came out, I think it was like nine or 10 months ago, our system has found 22 new results that it thinks are relevant mm -hmm. since then. And that was very eye-opening for people to start to think, you know, when you generally are doing these systematic reviews and looking at the literature, you're thinking about a point in time. Mm -hmm. um, and you're not really thinking about what's beyond that point in time, but a lot of stuff happens. You know, 7,000 mm -hmm. papers are published every day. So we came back and we said, look, these are the 22 papers and their results that we think are relevant to update what you're doing. And they thought mm -hmm. that was pretty cool. You know, for that segment, that was an interesting result. Um, and then another one that I, I, uh, I think is more generally applicable one of the things the system is doing when it's reading is it, it's not like a keyword system. So we don't say, look for, you know, these 10 keywords and those will be the outcomes like bleeding or remission, something like that. Essentially, you've taught the system how to read and it knows based on the context of language that this phrase it's 
looking at might be an outcome or something like that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things people do with our tool, which is sort of interesting, is they just kind of poke through the little filters on the side, which are all the different outcomes the system is uncovering. And the reason why they're doing that is that the system can come up with all sorts of really interesting things that you as a person probably haven't thought of because it's looking at so much data, it can do it. And so one really neat example was um, there's really a, a tooth and nail fight for second place with atrial fibrillation drugs right now. Okay. Um, so Apixaban or Eliquis is sort of the number one drug. And then second place, there's Xarelto, which is Rivaroxaban, and Warfarin, which has been generic for a while and, and right. we call it the Bigotran. And they're really fighting hard for second place because it's an important position to be in. So one of the one of the, the people was looking at the tool and the, the system actually uncovered differentiation, a key differentiation between Rivaroxaban and Warfarin and Dabigatran. So, and what the system uncovered was that uh, the Rivaroxaban had a lower liver injury hospitalization rate mm -hmm. relative to those other two drugs. And, you know, this is an automatically created little mini meta-analysis it found, right. supported by a 100,000-person real-world study. I think it was like a claim study in Denmark or something. Mm -hmm. And so now, all of a sudden, there's a you know very large support that in the case of liver injury hospitalization associated with atrial fibrillation, which are comorbid patients, which are hard to treat, yeah. uh, Rivaroxaban is actually the safer choice. Huh. Um, and that was really eye-opening. And that was you know, completely literature surface, you know, mm -hmm. backed by the study. I mean, I don't know that a person would have thought to look, uh, you know, look at that. And so we see examples like that. One was, we have the ability to search through costs as well, not just mm -hmm. outcomes. And so people will, they want to look at all the different outcomes, cost types to craft their uh, burden of disease, you know, for reimbursement. And so it's interesting because the system finds costs that you would never think of, like uh, urinary tract infection associated costs with diabetes. And, you know, people with diabetes may know that one, but, you know, that's, again, you know, the creativity of the system discovering things for you. So uh, ostensibly this, um, the theme of, of this podcast series is precision medicine, although that, that itself is kind of this unwieldy umbrella term that mm -hmm. means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. What does it mean to you and how do you see every kind of fitting into precision medicine? What's your, what's your niche? How do you think about, you know, treating the individual patient rather than the average patient? First of all, I'm, I'm a, a big proponent of that. Um, and, you know, I, I believe in strong in that, you know, personally. And, you know, to me, precision medicine is, is almost like uh, my analog of recommender systems, kind of. In so you used to go out and, you know, if you would go and search for something for Amazon, they used to just tell you like the top selling thing. And then they started to realize like, well, actually, I can recommend things that you care about right? They're very specific to you. And it became a better experience. And I think that precision medicine is very similar. Uh, I agree with you. Treating the average patient doesn't make sense. One of the long-term visions that we have for Evid Science is to combine evidence-based medicine with sort of precision or personalized medicine. So the idea is, you know, you have these evidence-based treatment paths or essentially the evidence in general. So if I go to the doctor, they say, okay, you're a healthy person of this, you know, state. you have uh, heart disease. And so, you know, if I look at all of the evidence, that would be the average this is what you should do. Mm -hmm. But now if, if a, a patient goes to that doctor and they have, you know, like I was saying before, like they're comorbid with liver disease, for instance, right. and they're an elderly patient. Well, maybe the evidence, you know, maybe only six of the 10 papers really applies to that patient. Mm -hmm. And so you need them to dynamically change that evidence for that patient. So uh, in my mind, uh, what Evid Science can do is combine the best of kind of Evidence-based medicine, this is what the literature is supporting with personalization by, by kind of dynamically crafting down the evidence on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. If you find the right set of filters on Amazon, you will get the socks that you're looking for. Like it's, That's right. Let's take a, a, maybe a break from talking about the company and, and uh, this kind of science. I'm interested in, in how you got to this. So, you know, you've got a really interesting CV. I guess you've been doing startup for a while. You come mm -hmm. from a computer science background. Mm -hmm. But uh, tell us about your, your education, both in school and since, and sort of how you wound up in, in healthcare. 
Sure. Yeah, it's been a very roundabout course. So I actually started off as a creative writing major in a, as an undergraduate. Um, and I did that for about a year and a half and I loved it. And one of my roommates was very interested in computer science and I like to play a lot of video games. And he said, you know, I know you really like video games. Why don't you take a computer science class? And I did. And I loved it. Um, I found a lot of analogs between, you know, my love of literature and language and computer science. Um, hence, a lot of my focus in, in AI and, and NLP, natural language processing. Um, so I switched to computer science major finished that up. I ended up going back to graduate school at USC because I wanted to work in a particular area of AI called information agents, which uh, at the time, the idea was you had all these little independent kind of AIs that could do cool stuff and combining them could yield interesting like data gathering and analysis capabilities. And so I was there. I spent a lot of time at uh, USC's Information Sciences Institute, which is a university affiliated research institute. But really, it was a uh, scientists in training program, and it was really great. Then uh, I finished that up. I went to work at a, a startup company called Fetch that was applying AI to scrape massive amounts of data from the web. Went into finance briefly, uh, and then I went back to a company called uh, Infralink, which was essentially the research lab of Fetch that we spun out, and we did a lot of really cool stuff in text analysis, um, machine learning, things like that. Uh, briefly did a, another stint at a marketing automation company and then went back to Infralink. Um, but the reference to uh, the startups, I think, is probably because of the Infralink model. So Infralink is a really cool company. It, what, what we were doing there was raising money through grant programs from the U.S. government, mostly, Department of Defense, NIH, National Science Foundation. And then the kind of the way the company grew, because it was, you know, scientists and research engineers, was to spin out companies to commercialize that research. So uh, we've spun out a number of companies, Evid Science being the fourth one. So we spun out a company in cybersecurity, uh, one around human resources, all using AI in some interesting way. That's um, a really interesting model. But in, Infralink itself is, is a company. It's not a government entity. That's correct. It's, a, it's essentially a government contracting entity. So, okay. uh, Still do lots of work there with, you know, DARPA, which mm -hmm. is a very forward-looking sure. part of the DOD, with the NIH, with the NSF, things like that. Honestly, the healthcare one, uh, we, we have a mandate at Infralink to kind of focus on research that we care about and that we were interested in. And the genesis for Evid Science in general, actually, was uh, my frustration in talking to my own doctors about the lack of evidence. And it wasn't their lack of evidence. Mm -hmm. They just said, you know, it's just too hard to go through and compile sure. it all. They're like, we have patients. And I said, there's got to be a better way. So, you know, we applied for a grant uh, at the NIH to apply, uh, you know, AI and machine learning to the problem of sort of surfacing the evidence and compiling the evidence. And mm -hmm. you know, we've been on our way since. Yeah, I, I like the, the model where we're able to use U.S. grant dollars to actually make a dent commercially. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, I'm a big proponent of the Small Business Innovative Research Program, SBIR, mm -hmm. and the STTR program. Um, in many ways, uh, the federal government is willing to take risks that even certain venture capitalists aren't willing to take. And, you know, they're really filling, filling that need, which is great. You know, I think one of the, the real challenges for folks like ourselves in, in breaking into different aspects of the healthcare industry is to to think about kind of the, the big incumbents. So like hospital chains are big and hard to sell to. They tend to be fairly risk averse, although I would say pharma companies are now really, their eyes are quite open to the impact startups can have. How do you think about kind of building the credibility to approach, you know, a big organization like a, you know, a hospital group or something that, you know, is sitting on all this evidence? So, you know, it, I think that our backgrounds and yours as well as, as scientists helps a lot. Um, part of the reason being that to get that validity, um, you really do need to present strong science. So, for instance, with us, one of the things we did at the end of our NIH project was to replicate a known systematic review published by Cochrane. 
Um, and that was a good starting point where we could say to people, look, we have, you know, we've done science, we've done experiments to validate what we're doing. Um, and then, you know, we did it again with this customer's SLR and things like that. And, you know, just being very open about, you know, where you're coming from, from an experimental standpoint, and that you have a scientific background. Um, you know, I think that's really where that credibility can come from. You, know, you have to really treat it as science because you're usually dealing with scientists on the other end. So you say, you know, here's our experiments, here's how we did yeah, I found that, however, one challenge coming from, you know, a research science background myself, interacting with scientists very often, okay, we're solving a problem, we're answering a research question, but in the process, we develop a cool technology. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the commercial application of that is not the thing we did in the lab. So I find that a lot of sort of scientific founders often have a cool tech and are kind of in search for a problem. Mm -hmm. Where can I wield my tech? You know, I, I unfortunately think this is kind of the, the wrong way to go at building a business. So how do you think about what advice can you give, you know, the people you interact with either Infralink or, you know, your, your information uh, research institute about finding a problem and then figuring out the tech to apply. Yeah, and I think you're 100% right. And it's, it's a hard lesson to learn and a long lesson to learn. And I feel like we just learned it with Evid Science. I think with some of the other startups, we were, you know, kind of a, a tool in search of a problem. Um, and what we did at Evid Science, which was a little different, was before we really even commercialized anything or built a product, you know, we just had lots and lots of conversations with people. I think we had on the order of 50 or 60 conversations. Um, so we kind of followed this methodology of like the quote lean startup where uh, you're applying the scientific method to your business. So you have a hypothesis, which is, you know, I think this technology could be useful in X. And then you, you essentially run your experiments to validate that, the experiments being conversations in this case. Um, and we just talked to 20 people or so in pharma companies, talked to a whole bunch of doctors, all the way from uh, chief medical information officers down to resident. Um, you know, we even talked to a few insurance companies. And the way we start those conversations, you actually have a benefit as a scientist because you can say, hey, I'm a scientist. This is the cool thing that we're working on that we've built. You know, we're not sure what the real world applicability will be. Would you just have a 15 minute conversation with me about this? And people are very willing to do that, actually. And we did that and we, you know, we still are crafting our tool based on the feedback we're getting. But that's really what helped us find that intersection between, you know, whiz bang technology and something practical and useful. I like the story you told. It resonates with actually being there in the doctor's office and talking to him about, you know, yeah. what's giving him a headache that day. Yeah. In fact, in fact, for the residents, what we did is we went to one of their sponsored lunches and a friend of mine helped me organize like 15 residents because, you know, they'll come for lunch. And I, we just sat them down and I said, you know, what does medicine look like for you? Because, you know, they're the most technologically adept and the youngest. You know, what do you see the future of medicine? So things like that. You can correct me if, if you think I'm off base. The large solution providers that sort of ring a bell when I think of, of what Evid is trying to do are, are folks like IBM Watson and maybe even Flatiron. Is that a fair comparison? How do you differentiate against them? Do you ever get kind of the guilt by association? We do a lot. So, so Flatiron, so, so, you know, Flatiron has human beings that are sort of entering a lot of their data behind the scenes. But what I love about Flatiron and what helps us is it really opened people's eyes up to the idea that the data is the crucial thing and you can do all sorts of interesting stuff with it. Now, we do get the Watson one a lot um, because, you know, people hear machine reading, they think Watson. The, the big difference is, um, so we are a very specialized evidence-based NLP. Mm -hmm. So essentially, text comes into our system, uh, you know, and we can break it down into the constituent components. And because uh, we're so specialized, we can do sorts of comparisons, we can uncover differentiations, you know, outcomes, all that kind of stuff. Um, so we're very tailored to that space. Now, Watson itself is a more general purpose, natural language processing toolkit. So it works on medical literature, it works on Jeopardy questions, it works on history, it works on everything, right? So one of the things it does is it you can ask it pretty generic questions and it will work well. So you can say, 
you know, how many patients, you know, have undergone trials for X. Uh, and it can answer generic questions. But what it can't do, because it's not built to pull apart and tease apart the very specific pieces that represent the evidence, it can't tell you, you know, how X compares to Y for safety or for efficacy or something like that. So we're like a very, we're like the savant version of, uh, of Watson focused on these results. Yeah, so you had mentioned that you consider yourself sort of a deeper level than sort of a typical search engine. Maybe they're kind of like the Google of healthcare, you know, information, and you guys are, you know, something deeper still. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's sort of like layers to these things. So when we explain to people, we say, you know, think about Google, and Google has gotten better, but, you know, it's, it's keyword search, and it returns you documents. And now there are these other tools that are more conceptual, and they're great, right? Like there's Semantic Scholar and some of these other ones, and you can, you know, really search on a, a con- like a conceptual level. And then we're one layer below that still, where we're actually letting you search the result. Often when I ask the following question, which is, you know, there's a lot of hype in around the AI to make a difference in healthcare. And I think, you know, IBM hasn't kind of helped us in that regard. You know, they built a lot of it and helped um, disillusion a lot of people. But what do you think actually is some, an area where we're making a dent? And then where do you think there's still kind of a whole lot of hype that, that remains to be proved? Um, yeah, so so I agree. There was a bit of a disservice, but in many ways, it was a blessing in disguise because a lot of small companies are very careful about what they say, about how they can help, and they prove it. So um, one of the things that the blowback against all the hype is the effect that I think that I'm seeing, and which is actually positive, is if you can get beyond that initial blowback or disregarding what you're doing, oh, you know, you're an AI company like Watson, which didn't work. If you can get beyond that and you show them the value people are actually like, oh, this is pretty cool. So, and it's forced a lot of companies to do that. It's forced a lot of companies to, you know, really have value and show value rather than just, you know, hyping what they're doing. And, you know, I actually see AI helping in all sorts of different ways. It's pretty amazing, actually. So, um, you know, we, we like to think that we're being helpful in the literature space. There are plenty of very interesting companies in the omics space doing very similar stuff, you know. And in, in some ways, everybody's attacking different problems in the same way, which is making data more accessible and easier to use. There's a, there are some pretty interesting companies that are starting to track, you know, some of this real world evidence that's coming out. One of my favorite companies is called Kili Health or Leaky Health, and they are a mental health digital intervention. So it's a video game that you play mm. and it interacts, you know, based on your performance, it, it kind of changes the level and it helps. I believe it's for ADHD. There's a little bit of AI because it has to kind of understand doing and how you're interacting right and you know there's there's all sorts of cool you know robots that you see now for surgery and there's a lot of really interesting diagnosis i mean i think almost across the board they're helping but they're helping in these very specific ways it's almost like kind of a boiling the ocean you know five or ten years all of a sudden you're gonna look around you say wow all this stuff is really cool and it was all built, you know, using AI. You just didn't realize it because it's sort of slow creeping up. Yeah. I mean, that's what strikes me is just that, you know, the, there are so many different points at which these kinds of technologies can make a difference from the very basic research and even things like, you know, I mean, a, a very active area that, that we're cognizant of is like drug target prediction, mm-hmm. which is, you know, that's anywhere from five to 15 years before that drug might even, you know, see a patient. Right. Um, but then you also have on the very far spectrum, you have things like apps that help patients stick to their dosing regimen better and stuff like that, you know, just compliant. Yeah. And, and the kind of digital intervention. There are even clinical trials around those kinds of apps now, which is you know, fantastic. Yeah. In fact, Infralink led one itself. Um, so Infralink created an app that was an intervention for PTSD and led a clinical okay. trial around it. I mean, I guess we've all got smartphones. We might as well put them to good use, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's some really cool ones. I saw one that um, helps people diagnose if their baby has jaundice um, oh, wow. and it can do color correction on the camera and stuff. In this clinical trial enrollment apps that are helping match patients. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's going to be one of these things 
I hope so because I'm optimistic where, you know, all of a sudden, like I said, you look around and the technology is there, right? It's sort of like 10 years ago, you wouldn't have thought that our online experience would be the way it is now, but you know, everybody's on Netflix and they're watching all the cool stuff that's recommended to them and it streams nearly perfectly with, you know, really beautiful high definition. And now there are other competing, you know, Amazon has their prime video and all this kind of stuff. And sort of like out of nowhere, slowly all these technologies developed and they kind of like hit this cusp. And now we have like an amazing digital media experience. No, it's true. It's, it, it sneaks up on you in some ways. And, you know, we're deep in it. So in some sense, we, we, we're kind of, we know what's happening in a very narrow way, but yeah. you know, at least I kind of miss sometimes the forest for the trees that way. Okay, so this is always kind of a, a tough one to answer, at least for, for a lot of people. Um, we've talked about some of the ways that, that Evid's doing very cool work and, and showing value. Give us an example, either from Evid or somewhere else, you know, from your work past where you took a stab at something with an AI approach and it just didn't work. <laughs> yeah. What, what's the, the negative use case here? Yeah, there, I can tell you two very specifically, um, okay. and neither of which are related to Evid, um, both of which I think are humor. When we find a company out of Infralink that focused in human resources. What we actually did is we built a really cool AI engine that was able to determine synonymy from text. And this was years before people really were using kind of word vectors to do that kind of stuff. So we thought we had a pretty novel and interesting approach. And one of the things it could do was it could essentially, when you're looking at HR, it could cluster job titles and the skills that they use. And so then what you could do is you could ingest a job description match it to a person either based on their titles they have or the skills they use. And one of the things that the system did was there's a long tail if you look at skills and, uh, and titles that people have. So in other words, there are a large number of very common titles and skills that people have. Uh, and then there's a whole huge number of very rare and infrequent skills that people have. Mm -hmm. And the system couldn't quite figure out how to balance rare skills versus common skills. So it would do really funny stuff like recommend people that were bartenders to be system administrators because they shared server. <laughs> um, so you have like server and then you have like the server. And you know, that's rare enough where it was sort of in this tail and the system was like, oh, it must be really important. Let's do that. Um, so we had a lot of really funny cases. So we had to have a human being kind of sit in the middle and say yes or no, yeah. because the machine was suggesting all these awkward uh, jobs to people. And that was kind of funny. And then you one that's- learn a lot about our use of language that way, right? Like the, the ambiguities of the English language are, are many. It's tremendous. And um, in fact, we have this debate a lot here because someone, someone here worked a lot on vision prior to coming here. And the joke is always that vision has huge data sets because, you know, images themselves are huge. But the problem is actually pretty narrow when it comes down to it. Like, it's very clear when I'm looking at an image that this is a cat or this is not a cat. Mm -hmm. Language, on the flip side, you know, I have, we were joking, I have all of Wikipedia on one of my thumb drives. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a lot of data. It's a lot of text. But, you know, it's pretty small, right? Right, it fits on my thumb drive. So, so you have the opposite effect, yeah. you know, like not that much data, but the, the inferences themselves are so complicated and complex. We debate all the time whether the system is suggesting something that's correct or not because language is inherently ambiguous. Mm -hmm. um, and even if you look your, at, uh, at systematic reviews themselves uh, and you look at the process and they'll say, you know, researcher A and researcher B filtered papers for quality. We brought in researcher C because we couldn't agree on three of them or something like that, right? So language has this beauty of kind of conveying the information but also having these extra challenges. As, as the second example with the AI, it didn't necessarily get it wrong, but it certainly backfired because of, uh, I would say, a lack of sensitivity uh, as computers scientists. Um, so we created a system that was able to uh, infer quite a bit about you based on what you said about yourself publicly on social media. So the idea was, um, you know, if I said something like I'm at the Dodger game, or I'm watching Kobe Bryant with my son, it will say, oh, this is a Laker fan because it mentioned Kobe Bryant, probably a dad. And so the idea was you had all these hypotheses about a person, 
and you find support for them and you can kind of build up a pretty rich profile. And it was based on everything that they said about themselves. Um, and the idea was we were trying to analyze audiences and understand, this was the, the marketing startup that we did, and really understand who the audiences are. So you can imagine a taking a Twitter feed for a comedian or something like that and looking at the audience and you find out that, you know, it's mostly dad sport fans or something that like this comedian. And that's useful information to maybe build a show around this person or something. And so we spun up a company to commercialize this and we went out to uh, some of the media companies and they were pretty interested. And then when they really thought about what was happening, they were like, no way. Like, you know, there's just, there's a deep level of creep, I guess, when the AI is figuring that much about you. And, and granted, you're, you know, essentially you're on these social media platforms, you're like yelling in public, right? So, you know, there's not like an assumption about the privacy, but even then, you know, it's sort of overstepping the bounds of what was appropriate. And thankfully we shut that one down, you know, because they're sort of more nefarious companies that mm -hmm. came a little while after that got in a lot of trouble as they should have. But, you know, I guess in some sense, when you have these AI tools, you, you don't realize, you become desensitized to how powerful they may be mm -hmm. um, and the blowback that you'll get applying them in inappropriate I wouldn't say inappropriate but in ways that are sort of beyond kind of the social norms right now yeah I guess specifically with social media some people even if you're yelling in public some people think it's not that you're anonymous but almost it's an avatar right like it doesn't yeah. have to be you or maybe it's your id and you're embarrassed by that when you actually reflect on it or have someone else tell you about it or something but and, so, and that also led us to really think deeply about you know, what we want to do with our next few companies that we spin out. And so Evid is, we actually thought before we had all the conversations that we had on the commercial side, we actually thought it would be a nonprofit. We thought this is interesting and important data that needs to get out into the world. Well, I mean, there certainly are, are sort of uh, public benefit companies that, you know, do things like this. I, I spoke recently with um, Ethan Perlstein of Perlara and they're a public benefit corporation, for example. You know, very much focused on rare diseases and, and things of that nature. That's yeah, great. But of course, you know, you know, when you're talking about people's health records, there's certainly all sorts of ethical landmines built in there that I'm sure you guys have to consider as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. In fact, one of the reasons why um, we focus early on, on biotech and less on healthcare providers is, you know, we want to be so careful. It's an, if, it, if an AI is saying something, you know, about how effective something is, we want to really guarantee that that's correct. Let's prove it. Prove it in the lab. You know, yeah. there's, there's a system in place for proving efficacy. So Another random uh, funny AI story, I think. This happened back when I was in graduate school, but one of the other teams was working on simulations of like kind of helicopters that would fly in formation. Mm -hmm. And they went to go give the demo at uh, the sponsoring agency. Um, and each, each helicopter had its own autonomy and it would follow orders and stuff like that. Um, and so they just started asking, you know, the people at the sponsor agency, ask it to do different things. And one of the things that it could do, this particular technique they're working on would kind of assign a leader and everybody could follow the leader. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they have this like little video game of them going out. And then one of the people at the sponsoring agency said, okay, so now what happens if, you know, we crash the leader and you hit some button and the leader crashes and there are four helicopters and the other three helicopters just sat there and they hovered and then they all just crashed. And what had happened is they ran out of gas because they didn't know what to do when there wasn't a leader. So right. they were all trained to follow the leader. So it was, it was pretty that's funny because, you know, clearly that's the AI's lack of common sense, which I think yeah. is always pretty funny. Anyway, um, I don't want to take too much more of your timetable, so we can wrap up a bit. I guess any, any uh, parting thoughts, kind of wisdom that you've learned about um, applying AI in healthcare? Really, you just have to put in the work. You have to, you have to do the science, make sure it's sound, uh, you know, run your experiments, talk to lots of people. Honestly, 
for me, the biggest transition coming from science to being an entrepreneur was just the number of conversations that I had to have. And that was a, a long and important lesson. You know, you, you may have a great idea and you probably do, you know, you being the world, but you really do need to validate it uh, and talk to a lot of people. People aren't going to steal your idea. Um, you know, that it doesn't happen. It takes too much effort to actually do these things. The idea is actually not the valuable thing to execution. Right. Um, and so, you know, just go and have those conversations. People are, are actually willing to help and be nice. You know, so you just have to kind of put yourself out there. Well, that's great advice, especially for anyone who has hasn't tried this or, or anyone yeah. who hasn't is dusting themselves off. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for your time today. I look forward to uh, bumping into you at the next, the next chance we get. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you for the time. I appreciate it. This has been episode five of Talking Precision Medicine. Thanks for listening. 